Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter uh, to the Corinthians. Thank you for the challenges within it. We pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you'll be at work among us, transform and change us more and more each day into the likeness of your son Jesus, our saviour and king. Amen. How are you with conflict? Surely you've had a dispute with somebody at some point in your life. We're bound to have done. We're humans. It's to be expected. How did you feel? How did you react in that situation? When there's a dispute, when we're involved in some, sort, some form of conflict, we can have those strong feelings of, wanting justice or those strong feelings of the injustice of the situation. We can feel like we've been wronged and I want justice. Or we can feel injustice. No one takes me seriously with whatever conflict or dispute it is. And conflict and dispute will happen in life and it will happen within the church. We will have fallouts with people. The question is, how do we handle it when they arise? When someone sins against us, when we fall out with one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, what are we to do? Do we forgive and forget or do we confront that person? Well, the answer is both. Last week, we saw the Corinthians refusing to confront sin within the church. They were even proud of it. Yet Paul says, we must confront somebody who is stuck in sin. We must confront them for the sake of that person, for that individual, but also for the sake of the church, for the holiness of of God's people. And as we move into this chapter this morning, chapter 6, we see the people refusing to forgive and move on. There is a desire to win the cost, win the argument, no matter the cost. And so, first of all, Paul says, you must resolve dispute within the church. This is the problem There's one believer within the church who's at dispute with another in the church and the result is that this person has taken this person to court to resolve the issue. At the time, the court, the place of judgment, was in the middle of the marketplace. It was a very public uh, arena for this to happen. Uh, And Paul says, this is not good. This is not good for the church of God to be doing such things as this. He says in verse 1, Any of you, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? In the Greek, that idea of daring to take this to the public arena comes right at the beginning of the sentence. Dare you, as God's people, take this to the public arena instead of dealing with it yourselves in house. Dare you do that? 
But Paul's not condemning secular courts. There are times when uh, things need to go beyond the church. And we've seen the effects of not taking things to the proper authorities in the church in past years. There is sometimes a need to go beyond the church. Paul's concern is that whatever this dispute is here, it should be dealt with within the church. That's the place to sort it. Instead, they're airing their dirty laundry in public. And so Paul goes on to remind them again who they are and what they will do. He reminds them that the saints, the Lord's people in that verse, takes us back right to the beginning of the book in chapter 1 where Paul addresses them as saints. He's reminding them again that they are saints, that they are the set-apart ones in Christ. They've been enriched by God in every way. They have every spiritual gift. And so he reminds them again who they are and what they have. And then he goes on to show them what they will do in verse 2. Do you not realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. You'll remember that they prided themselves, the Corinthian church, on being wise, having great wisdom. Yet three times in our reading, Paul says to them, do you not know? Do you not know? In verse 5 he says, isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues. They prided themselves on being wise, yet Paul says to them, do you not even know this? They were acting as fools. They will one day, as all believers will, judge the world. Will judge even angels with Christ. Whatever that looks like, I haven't got a clue. But what an amazing thought that is. We will be with Christ and we will judge the world with him. And if that's what we will do, surely you can sort out this little matter within the church among yourselves. And what I think Paul means by these little things, these disputes that are going on, is that in light, is, in light of what is to come, in comparison to that final judgment, even the biggest of earthly disputes to us, are little compared to that. It's like a high court judge. They make these important decisions each and every day, these uh, important rulings uh, of national importance. And this high court judge has had another busy day and arrives home, sits in his favorite chair and drinks uh, a nice cup of tea. And as he's relaxing in his chair, the kids are going crazy. They're fighting each other, they're arguing with one another, and this high court judge just sits there relaxing, drinking his cup of tea, ignoring what is going on before him. They continue kicking off, he continues to relax and ignore it. His wife has enough. 
she turns to him and says, you're a high court judge. Surely you're able to sort this dispute out with your children. Get up off your backside and do something. What Paul is saying is similar to what that high court judge is doing. That One day they will make this judgment on the world and on angels and yet they can't even work out these disputes amongst themselves in the family of God. You will judge the world, Paul is saying. Surely you can sort this dispute out between yourselves. Stop taking these matters to court. Whatever the dispute is, it could be uh, a dispute between property boundaries. What Paul is saying, sort this out amongst yourselves. And if you can't do it between the two of you, get somebody from the fellowship uh, to come and mediate that issue, that dispute. Sort it out without going to court, without a solicitor. But instead, one believer sues another. And this is the big problem. They're doing it right in front of unbelievers. That was the big problem. As they took their issues, their disputes into the public arena, they were hindering their witness to Christ and Him crucified. Because people know that the church is supposed to be a place of love where we love others above ourselves. Yet, what is the world seeing around them? They're seeing arguing and disputes and disunity within the church and that is having a massive hindrance upon the witness of the church. And Paul goes on in verse 7, you've defeated yourselves already. You've defeated yourselves in your attempt to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. When God's people are fighting amongst themselves, when we're not loving one another as we ought to, when we're not united in Christ, we look like hypocrites to the world. Paul's not talking about disputes on doctrine. He's talking about refusing to respond to a dispute in the church with another brother or sister in Christ in the light of what Christ has done for us. We ourselves may not be taking one another to court as the Corinthians were doing. But let's take this as an example. We meet up with one of our unbelieving brothers, uh, no, one of our unbelieving friends uh, for a coffee. We're having a chat uh, and the conversation moves on to somebody at church who really winds us up. They get on our last nerve for whatever reason. And then we sit with our unbelieving friend and we whinge and whine about that person. It makes us feel better. We're trying to grasp for some sort of sympathy from the other person. Yet this is the problem. We, we lose our credibility as Christians. I thought Christians were supposed to be loving. Yet this Christian talks about another Christian in that way. I think I'll give church a miss. I think I'll give Christianity a miss. When we make public our disputes among 
ourselves, it has a negative impact on our witness for Christ and him crucified. And so Paul is addressing that issue this morning uh, in this chapter. What's his solution? The second part of verse 7. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Why not be wronged and be cheated for the sake of Jesus? It's better to suffer wrong and be cheated than for the name of Christ to be dragged through the mud just so that we get our justice. That is what Paul is saying and they are hard words for us to hear. Because we want justice. When we're wronged, our initial response is we want justice for that wrong that I felt. Yet we must remember we are family. Sorry, I was going to sing then. Sister Sledge. We are family. Sorry. But we are family. As God's people, we are family. So let's work hard at sorting out our differences. If we have a dispute with somebody, go to that person and sort it out. And if you can't do it between the two of you, get somebody else involved from within the fellowship to sort that dispute out. Because when we don't, it is a bad witness to the world around us of Jesus. Let's put aside our need for justice. Let's be quick to forgive and move on. Let's be willing to accept injustice towards us for the sake of Christ. Who was the most wrong person the world has ever known? Jesus. Jesus was the most wrong person the world has ever known. He was without sin. Yet what happened to Jesus? 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus on the cross sets the example for us to follow on how we deal with disputes with one another when we live like that when we follow his example it makes us distinctive in the world around us we're to be self-sacrificing people following the example of our lord and savior jesus so that's the first thing that paul says settle your disputes within the church Secondly, uh, Paul goes on to say, be different to the world. Sin isn't just seen in taking our Christian brother or sister to court. Paul now addresses their sort of wider behavior. He says to them, don't be deceived, verse 9 and 10. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Don't be deceived. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom 
of God. It's not a list of exhaustive sins. It's not a list ranking sin from worse to not so worse. These are the ones that Paul mentions probably because these were the problem sins within the Corinthian church that they needed to deal with. And I'm not going to get into great detail on each of these sins. We haven't got time for it. But what I will say, which is contrary to the world and to a lot of discussion within the church at the moment, that practicing homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin in God's eyes. The Bible is so clear. Any sexual relationship outside of marriage, marriage defined by God between one man and one woman, is sin. It's not that homosexuality is any worse a sin than any other sexual uh, sin. But it is on that list and God is very clear in what he says on his word, in his word. We'll come back to this at some point um, to do more thinking around that issue which is a, a sort of big discussion in the church and in the world at the moment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, once commented, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. That is what Paul is doing here in this chapter. He's giving a warning but this warning isn't to anyone who has ever sinned. We all know as we sit here that we are all sinners. We all sin. What Paul is doing, he's addressing those people, as we thought about last week, who persist in sin without repentance or regard uh, for, for that sin. Paul is warning the one who is willfully living in sin, who is happy and content with it, who is not battling that sin in their lives, that if they don't repent and believe, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we don't want to live God's way, then it's a massive warning sign to us that maybe God's spirit isn't at work in us. Because what does God's spirit do as he works within us? He makes us more and more like Christ every day. We saw it last week, we thought about it last week, the believer will battle sin. We'll recognize sin. Yes, we still fall into sin, but we'll recognize that, we'll repent and we'll work hard at uprooting that sin within our lives. We must encourage this struggle amongst God's people. If we don't, and if we don't care, then Paul says to us this morning, those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is also doing in these verses is reminding us of what we have been saved from. He moves on, verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying, that was you. You once lived like that. 
But you were cleansed. Your sin has been washed clean by Jesus on the cross. You are now washed as white as snow. But you were made holy. You were sanctified. You were set apart in Christ for God. But you were made right with God. You were justified. You are now innocent in the eyes of God because of Jesus. You are clean, holy, and innocent in Christ. And it is because God's Spirit has been at work in us, opening our eyes to see who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Isn't that amazing verse? You were. It is past. It has happened. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that happened to us at that point. We were cleansed. We were made holy. We were set apart. We are justified in him. And so whatever we have done, whatever our struggle is at the moment, and whatever sin we will fall for in the future, we are clean, holy, and innocent in the eyes of God in Jesus. So never forget what you have been saved from. Never forget that. Imagine uh, we were able to put a chip behind your ear which projected your life on a screen and you saw everything. You saw your life before you became a Christian. You see it since becoming a Christian, uh, even this past week. Imagine on that screen you saw the sin that we've fallen into, the gossip, the way we spoke about someone, the way we treated someone um, for our own gain, the inappropriate things that we've watched or listened to. The list goes on. We look at that as a reminder of what we have been saved from. And so let us live distinctively different lives to the world. Let us strive for holiness, remembering who we are in Christ, what we've been saved from in Christ. We've been washed clean. We've been made holy. We are innocent in the eyes of God. So let us live, let us strive to live those holy lives. Let us lay aside our rights for the sake of the gospel and the witness of the church to the world. Let us be quick to forgive, quick to resolve our disputes, all for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word spoken to us this morning. Thank you for the reminder that we've had uh, of who we are. That we are washed clean, that we are made holy. That we are justified. All because we have called on the name of the Lord. Father, if there are any disputes among us, help us to be quick to resolve them. 
Help us to be quick to forgive as we look to Christ and remember the great wrongs that he suffered. And Father, help us by your spirit to live those distinctively Christian lives as we seek to be a light that shines brightly for you in this world. Give us boldness to do that and use us, we pray, to build your kingdom here in Accrington for your praise and for your glory. Amen.